Hello, I'm Julian Cheng. Our reading this morning is from Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. The word of the Lord. So if you were not with us last week, we began our series, series in the sermons uh, of sermons in Galatians. We also heard from Freddie Villanueva, so if you didn't hear from that, his testimony is available online. But we started a little bit in the book of Galatians, and just as an overview to get us started in Paul's letter to the Galatians, Galatians is actually dealing with social exclusivity, a bit of racism actually, and cultural assumptions about what is right and good. And what's interesting is it's dealing with problems in Galatia, but Paul is writing to believers, people who say they're Christians, but who were failing to see the implications of the gospel for their lives. They weren't letting the gospel sink in deep enough and push out into their lives. They weren't applying the gospel. So what's the issue? Well, we see the issue right from the beginning, in Paul's tone. In Paul's tone in the first couple of verses. So let me reread just the first five verses um, of Galatians, which we also read last week and talked about. Paul writes, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now the problem with that opening is something is missing. Something is missing that should have been there, and it's what comes next. A couple of years back, actually it was more like 12, 15 years ago, I was on staff at the Falls Church before we planted this church. And there were four of us that were working there as young Timothys, getting ready to be planted out. We were younger ministers, and one of the gifts that they gave us is each month, we got to meet with somebody who was exceptional in some field. We got to meet with a general or a president of a company. We got to meet with uh, pastors or, or people who had written books. Well, one of the times we were scheduled to meet with a woman who was uh, an amazing uh, executive coach. 
And she emailed all four of us telling us about a meeting at her office two to three weeks, I think about three weeks from the date she emailed us, saying Tuesday at one o'clock, one to three, we'll be meeting at my office. The next day, I emailed her back. Great, thank you, see you there. Two weeks later, three weeks later came. And about a day before we were going, two of the other guys emailed her back saying, hey, yes, we're in. We get to her office and the fourth guy was late, late by about 15 minutes. We all sat around in the conference room. She was very patient. Once we were all there, she said, okay, let me begin with the messages I've received from you guys. And these messages are this. You, she pointed to the guy who was late, arrived 15 minutes late. What does that say implicitly about your view of me, about my time? It's not important to you. I'm not a priority. Now, you maybe didn't mean that, but that's what I can read into that. And then she pointed to the other two guys, and she said, and you guys didn't respond to me. I didn't know if the email went through. It wasn't until yesterday that you emailed me saying you were coming. And I was like, yeah, take that, guys. <laughs> and then, of course, she goes to me, and she goes, Johnny, uh, you replied right away, but I know you. I actually don't really know these guys. You and I have worked together for a couple of years at the Falls Church. We were on a team for several months together. You know me personally. And yet we hadn't really seen each other because the Falls Church was a big church in a, in a few months. And I finally email you. And the, first th the only thing you say is, great, see you then. The proper thing to do is to say, hey, how are you doing, Lindsay? So good to hear from you. I'm looking forward to getting together with you. I will be there something was missing. It was friendliness. I robotically said, okay, I'll be there. But apparently you're also supposed to be nice in emails. And for those of you who haven't figured it out, you also have to be nice in emails. You reply on time and you say some nice things, especially if you know them personally. Paul was supposed to follow a formula and it was a formula he knew very well. It was Greco-Roman rhetorical writing. He knew exactly what he was supposed to do. And he followed it up until the fourth point. See, the, the four points of letter writing in Greco-Roman writing is you give first the author, which he does, Paul, an apostle. Secondly, you identify the recipients, he does, to the churches in Galatia. The third thing you do is you greet them. And he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And the fourth thing you always do, and he does it in pretty much all of his other letters, is you praise the recipients. You thank them for something. But right after he's done the first three steps, what does Paul omit? He admits praising them. He doesn't want them to feel good. Because his very next words are this, in verse six, the first half. I am astonished that you are. It's a rebuke language, not praise and thanksgiving. He's rebuking them and shaming them. And he actually charges them with an accusation, almost like a legal charge. He says that you are so, this is the rest of verse six, you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. That's the accusation. It's very simple. Instead of praise and thanksgiving, he accuses them of turning from God and turning to believing a false gospel. Later in this same section, he elevates, he amplifies the charges against them when he brings what is essentially a, a legal arraignment of them for their crimes. In verses eight and nine, we read this double curse that Paul uses. 
But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Again, Paul is using Greco-Roman rhetorical formulas. And this was a rhetorical formula called a curse formula. It was essentially a legal charge. It was, this is your crime, and this is the punishment. And the punishment was severe. May you be accursed. Literally cut off. Cut off from the community, cut off from the land of the living. In a Jewish mindset, that word accursed meant to be given over to God for his wrath and punishment. It's to be damned. But Paul doesn't just put the false teachers in Galatia under this. He also puts himself under it. He says, if anyone, not just the false teachers, but even if I, if we, or an angel from God should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that you heard from me originally, let him, including me, be accursed. What Paul is identifying is that what they were be believing and falling into was a different gospel, not the gospel at all. It was different in kind. We read at the end of verse 6 and into verse 7, Paul writes, It is a different gospel, not that there is another one, for there are some who trouble you, false teachers, who want to distort the gospel. The word that he uses there for different means altogether different, of a different kind. In other words, it's not like what they were hearing from these false teachers and what he was teaching them were the difference between Red Delicious and Granny Smith. It was the difference between apples and airplanes. You can't compare them. It's totally other. I told you you can eat these apples, and you said, but these people said we can eat airplanes. Why would you do that? So how do you know if what you're believing is a false gospel? You see, what's interesting is, and I'm not going to go deep into what their, the false teaching was, but it had to do with adding religious customs to believing the gospel, as if the religious customs would make you more mature in your faith or complete you in your faith. Like, you really want to be a Christian, you need to add these things. And they were well-known practices in one particular cultural group. So what was the big deal of adding those practices? How do you know if what you are believing is the gospel or different altogether? Well, this is sort of one of those well-known things that I can't really prove, but counterfeiters, I'm sorry, people who try to figure out counterfeiters, don't study counterfeit dollars. They study the real thing. You don't look at monopoly money to figure out what counterfeiters are going to do. You look at a $20 bill, an authentic one. We need to know the gospel, the real one, in order to be able to discern if we are buying into false gospels. And that's why last week we started in talking about the basics of the gospel. You know, it's interesting, we use the word gospel a lot, so let me just hold on to that for a moment. The word is actually a Roman, it's a Greek word that the Romans used as well that 
that means good news. Euangelion, there's some other ways of, of, of using it as well. But that word is, was used of good news brought to the entire empire, and it was usually used of good news of a military victory or the birth of a new emperor who would be the future savior and king. Hmm. But it was always used plurally, except for Paul, who began to use it singularly. So good news doesn't really work because in English, news is one of those plural, singular sort of things. Better might be that old language, the King James of good tidings, right? The angels come, the angel Gabriel and the angels come to the shepherds in Luke 2 and say, we bring you good tidings of great joy. There is to you a savior born this day, right? Good tidings, good news. But Paul makes it a technical term, unique to a Christian understanding when he talks about good tidings. The good tiding is essentially what he's saying, the gospel. And it's shorthand for everything we need to know about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, which we talked about last week. It's there in verse four, right? That grace and peace are now available to us because God the Father, through God the Father, because of Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. The good news, the good news, the gospel is simply that, is God loves us enough that he gave himself to die for our sins because there was a problem, our sin. And we needed deliverance from our sins and the evil of this broken and fallen world. We talk about it in that other shorthand way. Um, the gospel says we are more sinful than we're willing to admit and more loved in Jesus Christ than we dare to imagine. And I say that again and again because I want that to sink in. You are more loved in Christ than you can ever, ever imagine, but you are also more sinful than you're willing to admit. And both are true. Both are true. But the false teachers, the false teachers in Galatia were adding cultural and religious requirements to the gospel in order to be complete. And here's the deal. Paul is clear about it. The New Testament is clear about it. Faithful Christianity has always been clear about it. Christ plus anything else is no gospel. Christ plus anything or taking away anything from the basics of the gospel is no gospel at all. It's a different way of relating to God altogether. It's you deciding to relate to God on your own account. And that's not the gospel. Basically, what Paul is saying is don't add rules, religious or cultural rules, as necessary to saving faith in Christ. But also, don't diminish the nature of sin. Don't call it okay. Or do what makes you happy only. That's, a, that's not a bad thing to add on. Religiousness and relativism both are a false gospel, even if you try to add Jesus in in some way. One, because it says that the cross is not necessary. You know, if we're not that sinful, if you could do whatever you want, you're cheapening grace. You're saying, well, why did he need to die? But it cost Christ everything. The other, 
The other nullifies the cross of Christ and denies the grace of Christ because it says the cross is not enough. It refuses to accept the grace of God in Jesus Christ. You've got to also add this. Summing up the situation, author Beth Moore in a study on Galatians writes this, presumably the Galatians were still embracing a message related to Jesus, but the message was distorted when compared to the good news Paul had proclaimed. The new message was hardly good news at all. You know, it's most likely that the Galatians were surprised by Paul's letter and his tone. Because I think they probably had presumed the religious things they were adding, this new direction, were good things, making them better people. It was growth. And we can do the same thing. Very unknowingly step into adding extraneous things like the type of baptism or the type of music or the type of clothing that are real Christians wear, or having that sense of superiority because you see other people who call themselves Christians but they're not as charismatic or as reformed or as spiritually disciplined as you are, whatever. But I think for our culture, especially in a place like Northern Virginia, the bigger challenge is not religiousness, it's libertine relativism. That's, that was easy for me to say. It's that idea of I can do whatever I want. It's softening the gospel message to say that it doesn't matter if you follow and obey everything that God says. And clearly there are things that were culturally unique back then and we shouldn't follow those things. It's basically at some points to to view culture, any culture at any time, whether it was the religious culture that came into Galatia or the pagan uh, libertine culture that came into Corinth or whatever culture we live in today. It's to take the culture or our own happiness as the primary authority and to ignore God's holiness, God's word, God's glory, and the depth of our sin problem. Paul warns, I'm surprised, verse 6, that you so quickly have turned away from the gospel. You are so quickly deserting him who called you. You are so quickly deserting God. You know, if you believed in Christ for a long time, if you followed God for a long time, does that sound like that sort of an impossibility? Like, you could so quickly abandon Christ. No, we wouldn't so quickly turn away from the gospel. And yet, and yet, there's a constant draw when there's something that we want more in life than God, whether that's the approval of others or status or control or romance, or independence, and it offers another way, we'll probably take it. If we can imagine in our heads a way to be Christian and have it our way, we'll take it. (laughs) So Paul's warning is for us too. The two questions that I think we need to answer personally, each of us, are how we're going to end this time. And the first is this. The first question we need to be asking, is it true? Is the gospel true? Is it true? In a not very well-known essay written by C.S. Lewis called Man or Rabbit, if you look it up, you can find it. Man or Rabbit, he begins by talking about answering a question that was posed to him. And the question that he was writing about was this. Can't I lead a good life 
without believing in Christianity. And he was basically talking about many people in his culture in the 1940s, 50s, 60s who identified as Christian because Christianity helped them, helped them to be a better person, to be a more moral person, a better citizen. So can't I just kind of use Christianity a little bit to help me kind of stay grounded or orient my week or feel a little better about myself or get some moral direction? But what, Paul, or what uh, C.S. Lewis says is you can't know if you're a better person or even what's good at all if you do not know what's true. Because your view, my view of the purpose of life, the meaning of life, why we're here and where it's all going will define what is good. So you might be heading towards something you think is good, but it's gonna be based on your purpose, meaning, and ends definition. We need to ask the question if it's true. Let me let Lewis speak for himself. He's usually a little better. He writes, if Christianity is untrue, then no honest person will want to believe it, however helpful it might be. If it is true, every honest person will want to believe it, even if it gives no help at all. He goes on to write, either it's true or it isn't. And if it isn't, then what it really conceals is simply the greatest fraud, the most colossal sell on record. Isn't it obviously the job of every person to try to find out which? And he finishes this way. The people who keep on asking if they can't lead a decent life without Christ don't know what life is about. If they did, they would know that a decent life is mere machinery compared with the thing we are really made for, the divine life. We are to be remade, a real human, an ageless son of God, strong, radiant, wise, beautiful, and drenched in joy. We need to answer the question, is it true? Is the gospel true? And do we believe it? which is basically the question that we asked two weeks ago of, are you in? That's essentially what Paul is asking, are you in? You guys are going a different direction. Are you gonna be in or not? He tells them very clearly, the gospel offers you everything and it will cost you everything. Hear that, the gospel offers you everything, but it's going to cost you everything. Jesus was clear about this. It's not just Paul. Jesus was very clear about this. In Luke 9, the, the explanation is there, or the way that Jesus puts it is this. If you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to call yourself a Christian, you need to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. You want to save your life? You're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, and in another, tra- or another section it says, and for the sake of the gospel, then you will find life. What does it profit a person? to gain the whole world, but forfeit their soul, their life. The gospel offers you everything, but it will cost you everything. It's constantly asking, are you in? This weekend, um, Heather Mercer celebrated the opening of the Freedom Center in the northern part of Iraq, in an area of Kurdistan, essentially, 
The Freedom Center was opened by Heather and a bunch of other people in order to create a space of protection and freedom for the Kurdish people, uh, people that are hated by the Iraqis and the Turks. Nobody wants them anywhere near them, but she and her group have been caring for them, loving them for years, sharing the gospel with them, giving them training, safety, education, and they opened up the Freedom Center this weekend in Kurdistan area. Now, Heather is also remarkable because she's a single woman in her mid-40s who a number of years back adopted a deaf Kurdish boy who she met when he was about seven or eight. He did not have any words or any language. Nobody had trained him. So he had figured out about 50 of his own signs, but he didn't know sign language. She adopted him, brought him to the U.S. in order to go to a school for the deaf, and he, he graduated this year and is going to Gallaudet. But Heather Mercer is known for something more. It's actually where she was 20 years ago today. 20 years ago today, she was in a Taliban prison in Kabul for sharing the gospel with women. At the time when the Taliban was strongly in charge, she went to, to Afghanistan on her own at the age of 24. Talking about it in a Christianity Today article, she said this, I was young when I went to Afghanistan 20 years ago, but I had longed for years to go. I bought a one-way ticket. I told my parents, if I die in Afghanistan, bury me there, because that's the land I love. And even though it ended abruptly, she was captured by the Taliban, eventually freed, brought back to the U.S., uh, you know, I think about November of this 20 years ago, I never felt anger or bitterness towards the Taliban or towards the people. I never for a day regretted it. From the beginning, I knew there was privilege in the opportunity God gave me. She's described her passion for the exaltation of Jesus and the people, specifically the women of the Middle East. She is letting the gospel push in and push her out. And you know what's amazing about her? Is I knew her in high school but I knew her barely. She was two years younger. She's what I would call an average girl. Average girl, not extremely remarkably talented, not extremely, you know, like she wasn't the, the, the most brilliant kid. She wasn't the, the, the loudest, funniest kid. She was just an average girl. But an average girl moved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. an average girl moved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Her first job out of college, she went to an average college, her first job out of college involved her buying a one-way ticket to Afghanistan, to a place where women were being pushed down hard in order to share the love of Jesus Christ with them. Do you think she thinks it's true? What did you do when you were 24? What are you gonna do when you're 24. You think she was in? Paul asks or states rhetorically in verse 10, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? That's our question. Whom are you living for? God? Others, your parents, your friends, reputation, 
Are you living for yourself? Are you in? Are you willing to be all in? Remember this. The gospel is good news. It is very good news. It is good news that God loves you. God loves you. And he gave himself for your sin. All you're looking for in life and all you truly need is yours in Christ. And the gospel asks, won't you be in? Let's pray. O God, in whom we trust, strengthen us not to regard overmuch who is for us and who is against us, but to see to it that we are with you in everything we do. Grant that we may desire you, and desiring you, seek you, and seeking you, find you, and finding you, be satisfied in you forever. Amen.